You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of two lecture cycles by Rudolf Steiner. The first one is entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing, and the second one is called How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. This is the first part, Lecture 5 from Inner Reading and Inner Hearing, entitled Times of Expectation, given in Dornach on October 7, 1914. We will begin this evening with a reading of a few poems left behind and not yet printed by our dear friend Christian Morgenstern, and with them a few more poems from the recently published volume. A musical presentation will follow, and then we will view a few pictures of our building, followed by another piece of music. And for those friends who still wish to stay, I will offer in conclusion a few observations in which I will fit in a brief comment about our eurythmy for those who expressed the desire to hear something about its nature. To take the opportunity over and over again to bring Christian Morgenstern's verses before our souls, especially those which lay so close to his heart in the final period of his physical life, when he was so intimately tied to us, seems to be a holy duty. It is also something truly intimately linked to the entire nature and path of our spiritual scientific movement in the present. Still. One may simply say that Christian Morgenstern's manner of living his way into what spiritual science wishes to announce to the world has also in a spiritual sense become felicitous for our movement, which indeed is still at the beginning of its growth. Most of the friends gathered here know from various cycles and individual lectures I have given here and there in recent months that being together with Christian Morgenstern after his death was one of my most significant esoteric experiences in recent times. And I have not held back, especially with the experience connected with Christian Morgenstern that is so significant for the blessing flowing to our movement from the spiritual world. That a poet could tie his soul so intimately to our movement, which to a certain extent the cosmic tableau belonging to the elements of his present nature in the spiritual world, reveals with the means of the cosmic world and at the same time like an inherent part of Christian Morgenstern the truth of the very thing we have to recognize and to teach. That is something exceptionally significant, something that can in an astonishing way pour trust into the inner truth and also into the inner power of our movement. We know that something like the confluence of the cosmic all is now bound with Christian Morgenstern's individual being. Just as one beholds in a great canvas of a painter many of the secrets of the physical plane combined into one, so is the whole being of Christian Morgenstern bound together with this, I should like to say, cosmic painting, in which he now lives in the spiritual world.
because there individuals have to give not only their abilities to what they manifest, but their entire being. And one of the most moving experiences one can have is to see that he now lives for the first time with his true nature. It is most moving when one sees how this human being, who lived here in the physical world, hemmed in by physical constraints of the most diverse kinds, can now freely unfold himself. Parenthesis, those who love him can intuit, can experience this, close parenthesis, in the spiritual world. It is moving how we can only fully get to know such a being when we understand him in his significance after death. So after his death, Christian Morgenstern appears to me as the spiritual leader of many people who have in a recent period of the spiritual development of humanity gone up into the spiritual worlds and are experiencing through this a tremendous boon because in the physical world they were endowed with inner yearning for the spiritual worlds and could not find it. They brought this yearning up with them we have indeed spoken of these yearnings on the day of the laying of the foundation stone in reference to a particular person, Hermann Grimm. I showed how close he was to a comprehension of the spiritual world and yet was still not able to find it. For him and for many others, it means a tremendous benefit that they can now be convinced of what they sought but could not find, convinced because they have it before them in the soul of Christian Morgenstern. It is not as though they could not find it otherwise in the spiritual world, but it is something else to have it right in front of them in this way. That is the huge blessing of the fact that Christian Morgenstern bound himself to our movement in spirit and consequently was able to carry it up so that those beings who yearned to see such a thing could see anthroposophy in the spiritual world. Especially in my connection with Christian Morgenstern, after his death, I had often to think of two facts. One is connected with one of the greatest representatives of modern spiritual life, with Goethe. Now, all of us know Goethe as the poet of Faust, as one of the truest poets of all times, because he had fought through and suffered through what he showed in Faust. You all know that the second part of Faust closes with Faust going up into the spiritual worlds. Goethe showed this, but in Goethe's time the possibility was not available to find the images that correspond to the truth as it must be seen today. In this connection, it makes a tragic impression when we read Goethe's conversation with Eckermann, in which he speaks of his difficulties in completing the second part of Faust when he was working on visualizing this passage up into the higher worlds. He says there, quote, After all, you will admit that the conclusion, where the saved soul goes up, was very hard to do, and that with such supersensible, barely imaginable things, I could have lost myself very easily in vagueness, if I had not given a benevolently limiting form and firmness to my poetic intentions, through sharply delineated Christian and Catholic figures and ideas. Close quote. We know that Goethe found it necessary to reach for these outmoded Christian Catholic forms, 
that he had to clothe the passage of the soul into the supersensible world in these forms. We know, however, also that the yearning lived in him for what we are attempting today to bring in new forms, forms appropriate for our time. For that reason, it is of infinite significance that our movement found, right at the beginning, a poet like Christian Morgenstern, who was in the position to transfer everything this movement could give him directly into personal feelings, which resonate for us particularly with such warmth and magnificently love from the poems he left behind. That it was possible for him, right at the beginning of our movement, to absorb what it could give so directly into personal terms is of vast importance because Christian Morgenstern has raised everything personal into a super-personal sphere related to the points of departure of our movement. That such a thing is possible is truly related to the confidence we can have in our movement. I must be ever mindful of another fact these days. I mentioned once in a Berlin lecture that I had a conversation with Hermann Grimm who was so close to all the yearnings that could lead to an understanding of the supersensible worlds in our fashion. In the conversation I attempted to touch on these things. He had only a gesture of rejection for it. He didn't want to let it come near him. There was something deeply disturbing about seeing this peculiar behavior of Hermann Grimm, of all people, toward this fundamentally characteristic form of spiritual life for our time. Hermann Grimm, whom I want to call the accredited representative for Goethe in the second half of the 19th century. All the strivings of our movement go in the direction of pointing out to just such spirits who are now in the spiritual world what Christian Morgenstern had say, can say to them. You see, then, how we seek to raise what we feel as our connection, our relation, our love for Christian Morgenstern to a superpersonal sphere. I have attempted to indicate this in a few words. If you pursue with your feeling what will be presented to you now, you will feel, through the words of Christian Morgenstern, yet another experience, what he is for our movement and is still to become. At one place, in particular, we will feel ourselves moved deeply in the heart with respect to the events of these times. Even if Christian Morgenstern obviously meant, as he wrote the little verse, an entirely different war than the one we must experience today, what this little poem contains still goes deep into the heart in regard to the events of the present day. So we will now proceed, before I continue these observations, to hear something from the poems left behind by our dear friend Christian Morgenstern. Parenthesis, recitation by Marie Steiner von Sievers, quote, aus den nachgelassenen Gedichten von Christian Morgenstern, close quote, bracket, from the poems left behind by Christian Morgenstern, bracket, which poems were recited is not recorded, but among them were certainly the two following, close parenthesis first poem entitled Anthroposophy. O world, you pitiful human, 
you who do not know what here in your midst exists. The true greatness of this muddled time is here alive, humanly lived forth. A piece of the loftiest history unrolls here before us, and in it we are with it together. O great world, you pitiful mother-being, who, once again, O you dreamer, does not know, does not imagine what is coming to birth in you. Written in 1911. Next poem is simply titled, I. I watch how the ancient world rises up in me and endlessly makes war and how the new over it gently glides, alternately dimming and glowing. I look on. How ends the war? Will the thick smoke fall to earth and over it morning brilliance dawn? I looks on at me. This perhaps declares the victory. Written in 1909. Parenthesis music, presentation of pictures of the Gritianum construction, and music, close parenthesis. Perhaps you have already gleaned from many things said here, and also in other places about the field of spiritual science, as well as from the introductory talk about our dear friend Christian Morgenstern, that it matters somewhat to me to take all our efforts, therefore also what is connected to our efforts, as a whole, as something unified, and that it matters to me particularly that this whole, which is to be incorporated into the evolution of humanity as an impulse toward a new spiritual culture, really connects to the yearnings, the hopes, the expectations for a spiritual culture of the immediately bygone period. I have indeed attempted to emphasize this particularly here, at the celebration of the commemoration of the laying of the foundation stone of our building. We should therefore regard our spiritual science and its endeavors, and also what will live itself into our cultural context as eurythmy, as a unified whole but also as something that is not only a whole in itself, but that joins on to something we have expected. And when I previously attempted to draw a line with a few words from Goethe to Christian Morgenstern through Hermann Grimm, it should be a double example, that on the one hand there is real reason to believe with rather profound optimism in a progress in the development of humanity, and that on the other hand Spiritual factors, spiritual impulses constantly intervene in the development of humankind. I attempted to lead before your souls how Goethe, in the conclusion of his Faust, was compelled to represent the ascent of Faust into the spiritual worlds with old Christian Catholic forms. And I observed, in addition, how in the poet Christian Morgenstern, one who found his way to us, has made a beginning in moulding spiritual life, the supersensible worlds, in new forms 
necessary for people today. From many of the posthumous poems and from much of what I have said, you will have again perceived how poetry can make itself one, most intimately one, with what the spiritual life, as we mean it, desires. Let a new relationship be found between the life of the human being on the physical plane and its being connected with the spiritual worlds, and how spiritual factors intervene in the further development of humanity. I tried to make it clear, daring to express what may be expressed among true anthroposophists, that Hermann Grimm, who may be called the accredited representative of Goethe in the second half of the nineteenth century, may to a certain extent now find in what Christian Morgenstern was able to carry up to the spiritual worlds what he could not find on earth in his physical body. There we see the synergy of the spiritual with the physical development of humanity. And are we not seeking, my dear friends, with everything that is expressed in our building, a new form of the old beauty? After all, beauty signifies still much more than what one usually would connect to this concept. We must have a clear idea of how many-sided the progress of humanity is, if we wish to be aware of what it means, that in any particular age like ours, new forms of beauty, new forms of the entire mood of the human soul should emerge. Humanity must arrive at the point where something develops from the impulses of spiritual science that signifies a progress in relation to what was earlier that goes beyond what Goethe himself could have intended in Faust. We must hope for something of the sort. Goethe, when he felt the longing to immerse himself in beauty, could do nothing other than go to Rome to relive Greek beauty in his soul. Basically, the entire nineteenth century could do nothing other than go to Rome to gain second-hand experience of Greek beauty. But the age has arrived in which we must not merely go to Rome, not merely immerse ourselves in classical Greek forms of beauty. We must enter the spiritual worlds to find new forms of beauty there. And value must be placed on the fact that the bygone age, to a certain extent, thirsted for such an approach to a period of spiritual experience more than the present age can imagine. This is all expressed particularly in a spirit like Hermann Grimm, this representative of Goetheanism in the second half of the nineteenth century. Not to say something about Hermann Grimm, but rather to show by his example what is expected of the spiritual life of our present day, I will fit this link, Hermann Grimm, into the development of humanity as it has proceeded from Goethe to us who may regard ourselves as living and striving in the middle of what Goethe willed in the deepest recesses of his heart, in the deepest recesses of his soul. The way in which spiritual life progresses in the evolution of humanity is complex and accessible only to deeper contemplation. You know I mention personal matters only when there is an objective reason to do so. 
I often, when I turn my attention to the evolution of humanity, think of a feeble attempt I made as a very young person. In only the second essay I ever had published, I attempted, naively, obviously, I was just 23 or 24 years old, to form a clear idea of the progress from Shakespearean characters to Goethe's Faust. Something was created through Shakespeare. It had to be created, especially in his time, in which people could only be represented as human types in a way that shows a direct unfolding of their inner powers of soul. The progress in Goethe's Faust is that Goethe did not cast the individual characters as individual types, like Hamlet, Lear, Macbeth, and so forth in Shakespeare, but rather Faust as the human being of our age. Faust can be put into a literary work only once. What Shakespeare had to give could be brought to us in many human types. One must keep an eye on the complexity of human spiritual life in evolution. In each period, precisely that must happen which expresses itself as what is characteristic of that period. When we attempt today to properly find a soul mood, to properly find a deep feeling from the connection of the human soul with the higher hierarchies, it is truly, as we encounter in spiritual science, in a certain sense the fulfillment of expectations, expectations that held such a place in the development of humanity that one can say, such representative spirits as Hermann Grimm expressed in their way the deepest yearning for something they were waiting for, which must be put in the same way we describe today the higher hierarchies and their relationship to the human being. You see, on the deepest level, properly at the most soulful, one might say with all the power of the soul, a spirit like Hermann Grimm could express this. <clears throat> and precisely in his case it once again becomes apparent, even as we open his books, how in his personality the expectation is bound to spiritual science, which, however, as he briefly encountered it, he could not understand. It was necessary for something to intervene, like what occurred after the death of Christian Morgenstern. I met once with Hermann Grimm on the occasion of his visit to the Goethe-Schiller archive in Weimar. Then he spoke about how he conceived the evolution of humanity, that for him history was not an accounting of what is usually laid out in history. For him history was the evolution of spiritual forces. However, he could only rise to the point of calling it a history of the imaginative work of humanity. It did not dawn on him that there are imaginations in the development of humanity that unconsciously flow into humanity and transform themselves into human activity, that there are inspirations and intuitions in history. It was for him, quote, the imaginative work of the peoples, close quote. When he wished to find the rising from the physical world into the spiritual, he could not get to the point of resolving the purely external, the factual aspect of maya, 
which he called, quote, the imaginative work of the peoples, close quote, through what must reveal itself in the human spirit. One will, in fact, understand only later what it meant for the 19th century when Hermann Grimm said, quote, what can interest us particularly about the transmission of the history of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar, quote, close quote in Hermann Grimm's opinion, quote, is of much more interest to me as he is presented by Shakespeare. That is more real, more historical than everything laid out in history, close quote. Over and over again, he referred to how he enjoyed reading Tacitus, because he was a person who knew how to make what he had to describe alive from within his soul and to transform it into the spiritual. From such ideas, such a marvelous thought emerged as the one Hermann Grimm wrote down during the 90s in his book about Homer, a thought that really stands there so properly as an expectation that it should come as advanced tidings of the hierarchies. Quote, the human race, as a totality, acknowledges itself as subjected to an invisible court of law, as if reigning in the clouds. Humanity may not stand up against this court, which it regards as a misfortune, and to whose judiciary procedure it seeks to adapt its inner discord. Close quote. A wonderful image of the court of justice reigning in the clouds, under which the peoples know they are subjected. Does there not live therein all yearning for the hierarchies, for the knowledge of what the hierarchies are for humanity? In this way, spirits arose in the recent development of the spirit who, in their historical vision, had a kind of transformative power, so that here too such spirits stand as before the portals of what spiritual science wills. Through spiritual science, humanity will first learn a proper conception of the fact that Hermann Grimm actually contributed something to the development of the world through speaking as he did of Michelangelo, Raphael, Tacitus, Shakespeare, Voltaire, and Homer, and will feel these thoughts about the real development of the world in their hearts as well. And what Hermann Grimm said about Christ is once again an anticipation what spiritual science says about Christ. In this way, you have a sample of what really matters a great deal to me when we look at the emergence of spiritual science in the life of today, to represent how spiritual science comes as a fulfillment of much that has been expected. In 1895, the book was published in which the court of law reigning in the clouds was mentioned. We feel an intimate connection with that, if we may speak of a succession of levels of the hierarchies, an image that reproduces the inner truth of the matter is translated into the spiritual. And the beginnings of this inner transformative quality have already shown themselves. For just as Hermann Grimm, for example, has spoken about Michelangelo, Raphael, Homer, Tacitus, Shakespeare and Voltaire at the time of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. So the way he was able to make the works of Emerson come alive in the fifties of the last century shows us something of the transformative power for which the serious part of humanity strives and which can now find its fulfillment in spiritual science. 
and spiritual science must provide exactly what can become most personal for each human being, so that human feeling becomes the broadest, the very broadest, but for all that also the most intensive. I really want to say that particularly in such a representative spirit as Hermann Grimm, in relation to whom I believe I can bring increasingly more and more the effect of our friend Christian Morgenstern in the spiritual world, the striving for the spiritual reveals itself, and it is important not to pass over these facts. Hermann Grimm was a four-year-old child when Goethe died. He was seventy-three when he died on June 16, 1901. He lived his life in the second half of the nineteenth century in such a way that he had to be unified in his personality with everything that flowed into humanity from Goethe as impulses of beauty. In a wonderful way we see particularly in Hermann Grimm this tendency of humanity toward the spiritual, this formation of an organ for the understanding of the spiritual. And when I think of the cultural value of our Eurythmy, I must look again and again at how in the case of Hermann Grimm everything in the outer gesture was one, and harmony was present, which tends not to emerge particularly in materialistic life when one is not so inclined to see where the spiritual passes into the physical. It is enough to drive you up the wall when you see how all the modern sports, such as soccer and so forth, mechanize human beings and add nothing to them of what is spiritual, as much as one imagines they do. Everything one strives for in sports is indeed a mockery of the spiritual, as well-intentioned as it is. Conversely, a figure like Hermann Grimm, with whom everything external is in harmony with the spiritual, appears as something unified. The way he walked, even the fact that he always wore a top hat, belongs to the wholeness of his personality. The way in which he moved his hands, how he spoke, the way he sojourned in Bolzano when he was writing his book on Homer, how he could only work on the Homer book as he awaited spring in Bolzano. Everything is so beautifully harmonious, how he worked on the Homer book, how he went out in Bolzano at the day's waning, and in the park contemplated the wonderful statue of Walter von der Vogelweide, how he knew how to describe it right into the gestures, how he was able to describe the wonderful marble that comes from quarries close to Bolzano, and how he could connect everything he created, everything he did to the cultural life in the midst of which he stood. I have confidence in my ability to judge some things, as I was for a time close to a workshop of German intellectual life. I was in Weimar from 1889 to 1897 at the Goethe Institute, with which Hermann Grimm was also connected. There, especially, one could feel how Goethe was the king of intellectual, cultural life, and Hermann Grimm was his representative, accredited by the spiritual powers. One could feel how Hermann Grimm tried to encompass everything that had to do with Goethe in a spiritual harmony of gestures. His striving was to take Goethe in a spiritual way, to recognize Goethe, who had passed on but was living on in the impulses he had established, as living and weaving in the cultural life, in the midst of which Grimm felt himself to be. It was the beginning of the feeling we have today that 
the dead are as intimately connected with us as before they passed through the portal of death, and that they live with us, as it were, but only in a different form. His striving was to gather together all individual phases, all individual moments of life in one gesture, in one spiritual gesture. Perhaps many things back then would have led me to what is to be achieved in spiritual science, but I believe most certainly that I would not have been led to what our Eurythmy offers if I had not, back then, stood so close to that cultural life, if I had not recognized, as well, that the striving existed to summon something that is spiritual and which is at the same time experienced in the external world is really there in the external world. Naturally, it is all a great karmic connection and no accident. The way Hermann Grimm wanted to take life is something like an inner eurythmy, just as he had the wonderful transformative ability as a very young man to introduce Emerson into German culture in such a way as would happen in no other country. He drew attention to the fact that Emerson should be read more because he showed the best side of Americanism, and he resurrected Voltaire, Michelangelo, Raphael, and also Goethe, about whom he gave those wonderful lectures at the beginning of the 1870s at Berlin University. The scholars were not entirely happy with the lectures, but in every thought, in every word, in every sentence Goethe was alive and in his book titled Goethe, Hermann Grimm really wanted to give something to life in every aspect, that Goethe, who had been physically dead since 1832, who was almost forgotten, came back to life precisely through Hermann Grimm in the 1870s, was a singular occurrence. But now, because I spoke of the unified gesture, I want to refer to how Hermann Grimm always made an effort to see all things in a larger context, how he was able in this respect to become the schoolmaster for all who were seeking the transition from the spiritual life of the nineteenth century to the spiritual life of anthroposophy. Goethe is something universal for humanity. Hermann Grimm draws attention in his title Contributions to German Cultural History to how Goethe immediately became universal on earth after he entered the spiritual world through the portal of death. Grimm cites a beautiful passage from a lecture of Carlyle of 1838, quote, The appearance of such a man at any given era is, in my opinion, the greatest thing that can happen in it, a man who has the soul to think and be the moral guide of his own nation and of the whole world. All people that live under his influence gather themselves round him, and therefore, although many writers made their appearance in Germany after him, Goethe was the man to whom they looked for inspiration. <clears throat> they took from him the color they assume. I can have little to say of him in these limits. I can say of him the same as I said of Shakespeare. There has been no such man as himself since Shakespeare. He was not like Shakespeare, yet in some respects he came near to Shakespeare in his clearness tolerance, and humane depth. He, too, was a devout man. Close quote. Such a statement refers to the, at the same time to the universal, 
to what cuts into all human relations, to what makes the spiritual hero appear as if he does not reign only in the clouds, but in such a way that he really reaches into spiritual affairs. Something was contributed about Goethe in the entire consciousness of Hermann Grimm, who was really suited to take Goethe's spirit in such a universal way that Goethe could appear to him like the spiritual emperor, the emperor of spiritual cultural life. In Hermann Grimm's self-confidence and the free personality, the whole free sovereignty of the personality, express themselves in the world in a manner different than we are accustomed to. One may truly say that something is alive in Hermann Grimm that allowed him to take external matters as they are and, on the other hand, allowed him always to support himself on what he had in him of the spiritual life and he judged all worldly affairs out of the certainty of this spiritual life. So a time comes when Hermann Grimm, in his distinguished, quiet way, could catch sight of the loftiest moment in spiritual life when a monarch of the external world pays homage to the spiritual emperor. That is also a gesture of this world of unspeakable significance. I know that many have taken exception to that, but one must take things in their deeper context. Many have taken exception to the fact that Hermann Grimm mentions something that happened to him on Christmas Eve, 1876. It is significant because it leads to a point In modern times, when a person stands there who feels it is natural when a monarch of the external world pays homage to the spiritual emperor. So it appears to me to be terribly characteristic of the modern spiritual life when Hermann Grimm tells in his contribution to German cultural history how on Christmas Eve 1876 the following letter from the German Kaiser Wilhelm I was delivered to him. Quote, Perusing your book titled Goethe, of which you presented me copy on the 20th of the previous month, has furnished me with very pleasant impressions. You have succeeded in sensitively adding to the luminous picture of the great poet, yet many a trait as warm as life, and in gaining new points of view for the understanding of the relations between the external events of his life and his works. While I consider myself convinced that this intelligent gift offered to the admirers of the poet directly before Christmas will be recognized as a valuable enrichment of Goethe literature, I thank you most cordially for the pleasure which I have personally drawn from the book. Berlin, December 24, 1876, Wilhelm. Hermann Grimm says beautiful words about receiving this letter, for a spirit like him took pleasure from the relationship between spiritual and worldly life. And he saw Goethe and his time in this light as well. He sought to climb or strive up to something that escapes many people. And so it could happen that Hermann Grimm, in connection with this letter, gave a beautiful, a memorable description of the confluence of spiritual life with that of the external world of the 19th century. He says, quote, from Weimar outward, close quote, Weimar was for Hermann Grimm the foremost capital of German spiritual life. I know it and have often taken pleasure in it. Quote, the basic outlines of the spiritual development of Germany 
were drawn so firmly that Goethe's views remained the natural standard, and as in the pressure of national political need Shakespeare rose anew beside him, the latter was like only a dependent province of the Goethean Empire, for Schlegel had, so to speak, translated Shakespeare into Goethe's German at Goethe's behest, and Goethe and Shakespeare were united into a commonly effective power, etc., etc., close quote. And now follow the beautiful words, quote, And let us how the Kaiser conceived of Goethe. Goethe was not only the great poet, the great thinker of his time, rather the brilliance of historical princely loftiness connected itself with his person. I remind you of the closing of the text cited above, where the Kaiser thinks of his personal enjoyment, which he drew from the book. What does this consist of? Hardly of anything, owing to its literary quality. I would not acknowledge that the Kaiser would ever have mentioned Goethe in conversation, but he had, as I heard told, passages from the book read to him. <clears throat> I perceive in this the activity of a feeling in him that could not merely be defined by an interest in Goethe. Goethe was a departed power that possessed a claim on the participation of the German emperor, something like those endowed with the highest Italian order, Les Cousins du Roi. Hermann Grimm understands how to show the way in which spiritual life holds everything, and he himself is such a representative spirit. He says further, quote, One did not remember primarily his victories, his political successes, rather what was peaceful in the Kaiser, his gentleness, his balanced justice. It is wonderful how in the judgment of the peoples, even in the cases of warlike princes and holders of power, in the end what receives the most light is what they did for peaceful development. As in the cases of Frederick the Great and Napoleon, the admiring regard for their administrative activity already outweighs their warlike deeds. Quote. Thus we see the spiritual life of the modern age present itself in a unified gesture with the outer life. Hermann Grimm knew that he lived in times of expectation, as he expresses beautifully in the following statement. Quote, Goethe's age, along with the century to which it gives its name, is in the process of going under. We are excited about the past, not merely because it is past. No matter how many people, excuse me, no matter how many ways people go at their seeking and their digging, no matter how emphatically the excavation reports of archaeologists speak of the importance of their most recent discoveries, the Goethean gaze rests no longer on how the marble rummaged out of the earth was transformed into spirit. And also the public who believed in the mysterious value of the thoughts that slumbered in these discoveries is lacking. The age of Goethe is over, but Goethe himself? Did the century named after him know all the Goethean thoughts? Here we stand before a new historical knowledge. The radiance of Goethe while he was still alive had illuminated the German nation as the war against Napoleon. The first was completed, and the liberated people began to set themselves up in their own house in the honest belief that the victorious spirit must suffice for that. As long as the people who had been a part of it lived, 
an untouchable confidence in the power of higher spiritual work reigned. The years of humiliation that followed the wars of liberation could not shake it. This spirit was still alive in authoritative circles when I gave my lectures on Goethe twenty years ago. Already, however, the people who no longer expected any advantage from science in the traditional sense were gaining the upper hand. Science, as we of the older generation understand the concept, rested on unlimited recognition of what was transmitted in the Greek and Latin languages. Now, it is important that one understands more and more how the age of expectation is approaching, which finds in Hermann Grimm a last representative spirit. I think this is a quote. The 20th century will perhaps discover that Goethe already knew in advance what it will eventually achieve for itself, and even what it still strives for. One will mark the passages of his works where that is expressed. The span of time that separates the successive generations from Goethe will stretch out ever more broadly. However, what does a century more or less matter for the relationship of a further developing humanity with Homer or Shakespeare? Their power to penetrate into souls is constantly growing. Goethe will one day accompany them as a star for humanity. Everything in this man strives for spirit, for the transformation into spirit. In this way he has the expectation, and so brings us the genuine confidence that what we are offering has not arisen out of superficial arbitrariness, but rather is what humanity needs what it has been waiting for. That is terribly important. Moreover, the universal in spiritual science is already living in this expectation. For that reason, I may refer once again to what Hermann Grimm says in his book on Homer. Quote, Human beings as a totality recognize themselves as subjected to an invisible law court, as if it reigned in the heavens, before which they may not stand the test, and which they consider as a misfortune and to whose judicial processes they seek to adapt their discord. With anxious striving they seek justice for themselves here. What an effort the French make to present the war they intend against Germany as a moral claim that should be recognized by the other nations, even by the Germans themselves. I feel that Homer's goal was to conceive the battle of the people before Troy as if this movement, lying in the most extreme antiquity, had included many nations that had a common moral consciousness and were struggling with each other for the leading position. They resembled the nations of our own time in this. Neither external accidental force nor accidental protection of divine powers is decisive, but rather the justification that character bestows but rather the justification that character bestows was decisive in the Iliad. Close quote. A beautiful passage, a splendid passage. Quote again. The solidarity of the moral convictions of all people is the church that binds us all. We seek more passionately than ever a visible expression of this community. All truly serious efforts of the masses know only this one goal. The separation of the nations is here already non-existent. We feel that in relation to an ethical worldview no national difference is valid. 
we all would sacrifice ourselves for our fatherland. We are, however, far from yearning for or bringing on the moment when this could come about through war. The assurance that the most sacred wish of us all is to keep the peace is no lie. Quote, peace on earth and goodwill to men, close quote, permeates us. Close quote. Thus spoke Hermann Grimm in Central Europe in the year 1895. My dear friends, humanity has already striven to bring life into harmony with the spiritual worlds. It strove to find a society like ours. And there were efforts that adopted the correct position to all peoples of the earth and toward the peace of humanity, which were expressed in the attitude that Homer also wanted to express, according to Hermann Grimm's view of the Greek peoples, that they prefer peace to war. And in this way humanity was to learn that among many people what I have described in the case of Hermann Grimm lived as an attitude bound intimately with the soul. There was the aspiration to receive life as if from one mold, and the outbreak of this war, which was really not desired by this attitude, came as a surprise. And that the offshoots of our spiritual movement should arise from the whole of our spiritual life should indeed be a fulfillment of expectation. So it is with our eurythmy, which should not be confused with any of the exercises, physical, sportive, gymnastic or dance-like, that emerged from the materialistic age. Rather, it was pulled out of our spiritual endeavors, <clears throat> so that people can learn, especially in this sphere, how the spirit works in the most direct and intimate experience, I have already shown from diverse viewpoints how we arrived at this eurythmy. The aspiration existed to give something to humanity that shows the spirit of evolution in an external sense as well. We could only do this when it was clearly understood that we, in our direct life experience, also live in a world of forms, and that our steps forward are a penetration into the world of movement. The world of forms rules our physical body. The world of movement rules our etheric body. The movements born in the etheric body must now be found. The human being must be led to bring to expression in gestures, in movements of the physical body, what is natural for the etheric body. You will have seen in the preceding lectures about esoteric reading and esoteric hearing that some element of regular movement lies in the universe, in cosmic becoming. <clears throat> this carries itself over to the human etheric body. Our materialistic culture of the present, from which spirits like Hermann Grimm yearned to escape, has led to the situation that we have no understanding at all for the fact that human beings can only move themselves in external forms when they are not possessed by such, quote, dumb, close quote, forgive the trivial expression, movements as in sport, in modern gymnastics, or in playing soccer, but rather pursue in themselves the movements born in a natural way, in the etheric body, and begin to carry those movements into the movements of the physical body, so that the etheric body lives on in the movements of the physical body. That is attempted in Eurythmy. It will emerge that in their movements human beings are really an intermediary link between the cosmic letters, the cosmic sounds, 
at what we ourselves use in the human sounds and letters in our poetry. Most assuredly, a new art will arise in Eurythmy, an art for everybody. We might wish that humanity would be seized by an understanding of it, so that it would be practiced by children from the smallest, who have already experienced the most intimate joy from it, to the largest, and on up to people seventy, eighty, and ninety years old. It is always good when a person learns to transfer what is natural and inborn in the etheric body into physical movements. It is pretty obvious in spiritual life that what one can say in poetry can find its interpretation in the movements our Eurythmy brings. A pedagogical, an artistic, and a hygienic principle are simultaneously expressed in Eurythmy. It is a pedagogical principle in that human beings who grow up with Eurythmy, who do movements in the spirit of Eurythmy from the earliest years of childhood on, carry our movements, carry out movements that have the effect that the gods feel themselves properly connected with the earth. Hence Eurythmy is properly a means of producing a connection between the divine hierarchies and the growing child. For esotericists, it is immediately clear that a materialistic culture brings about a terrible discrepancy between what is born in a person and what the head and the heart must often learn. I do not wish to criticize this, but only refer to a fact. There is really nothing in the world up until now more unnatural than that children growing up today from approximately the sixth or seventh year on, have to learn what they simply must learn. I am not saying they should not learn it, for obviously they must. It is a part of external social necessity. However, for souls it is many way, it is in many ways as if one wanted to induce a natural development of the human body by breaking the hands and legs of children in the sixth or seventh year. That is what is done, more or less, when children are forced to learn letters, since for human beings learning to read and write are the most unnatural activities there are. We must force them into it, although the greatest disharmony exists between the art of reading and writing and the direction the soul would naturally take. It is wretched to observe, but it is a necessity. It doesn't help to close oneself off from it. Almost anything would be more intelligent than teaching reading and writing at this age, even instructing children to make figures out of simple filth from the street would be much more intelligent. The only thing we can do is to attempt to make the atrophied etheric body for it is atrophied under modern necessities move in the eurythmic movements of the physical body as the gods wish. That is what eurythmy should offer in a pedagogical connection. It is not surprising that many people complain today about this or that hurting when nothing is wrong with them. Humans today are attempting nothing more than to do what the Greeks did, to produce a harmony between the external movements of the physical body and those of the etheric body, and it can be very comical. When we tell ourselves that what the Greeks did in the Olympic Games was very intelligent and so decide, quote, we'll do that too, close quote, it is really very funny. It is the same as if, for example, a 25-year-old were not happy to study at a university 
and preferred doing what a five- or ten-year-old does. Simply to bring Greek custom over into our time is the most ridiculous thing one can do. It is a sin against trust in the development of humanity. If we seek today what the Greeks sought in their way at the Olympic Games, then Eurythmy must live its way into humanity. We must attempt to effect health from within the soul by not allowing the etheric body to atrophy, by letting the physical body do the movements demanded by the etheric body. That is the hygienic side of Eurythmy. The artistic meaning of Eurythmy will finally occur to people when they recognize that human beings are not only the creator of this or that, but must become an artistic medium or means. They will become that by practicing the artistic with their own body, and that they do through Eurythmy. Eurythmy is not something arbitrary that has arisen from approximately the same mentality as other endeavors of the present day. It asks which movements are the best pedagogically and hygienically for present-day people in respect to the etheric body, which movements best lead human beings to the understanding of what is truly artistic and best insert them into a full life. <laughs> for this reason I believe that Eurythmy will soon become popular in our circles and will be accepted as something that can help a great deal. You certainly cannot teach your children anthroposophy straight off, but if they practice Eurythmy, they will grow up to meet life in an entirely different way than if they did not practice Eurythmy. I have in many respects already spoken of the relationship of the great space of the round building out there to what is within the small space. Someone could ask how the forms of the small space proceed from those of the large space. And the answer is to try to have the forms of the great space of the building danced according to the laws of Eurythmy. Then the forms of the small space will emerge from it. Try to imagine that a person brings together in Eurythmic movements everything that is expressed in the forms of the great round building and dances this into the small space and radiates out from there what is danced. Then the twelvefold nature of the columns and the cupola of the small space would grow out of it by themselves. And then I hope that something else would dance eurythmically in the building, the word. It will be good acoustics. In brief, one can define eurythmy as the fulfillment of what the human etheric body demands from the human being according to its natural laws. Hence Eurythmy really offers something that belongs to our spiritual life as well, and something that is thought out from its totality. Perhaps you will take what I have wanted to say with all of this as an answer to a question put to us by many of our Swiss friends. What I have thus defined you can in reality become acquainted with through the desired courses. That's the end of lecture 5, and the end, uh, that's the end of the first lecture cycle, entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing.